All right, so we're starting up our new sermon series uh, here, uh, and ironically enough, uh, I'm a guy that's going to be talking on it, but our new sermon series are women within the Bible, and primarily women in leadership. Um, it's something that as a church, we uh, have recently just changed, um, where now we believe that um, women uh, do have the right to hold an eldership position, do have the right to preach, and so our hope and our intent is that um, Chris and I won't be the only ones up here talking, but the, some of the women in the church, if you feel called to or led to, that you would be enabled to preach and come up here and speak better and uh, probably uh, with a better perspective of what it means to be a woman than myself. Uh, even though little Aaron on uh, Christmas Eve, because Dave all the time is like, oh, you know, he'll give Aaron to us and I don't have a beard. I can't grow a beard. I wish I could. And he'll be like, oh, see, what does it feel like to have two mommies referring to me and my, my wife? Well, then on Christmas Eve... Little Aaron comes over to me. He's like, oh, Aunt Jake. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so, uh, so even though there's that, and I'm, I'm an aunt to somebody, I, I still don't have the, uh, the perfect perspective of a woman. Um, but one of the things I, I was thinking, because we were going to try to go through each um, kind of woman within Scripture that held some form of uh, leadership or maybe prophecy or something brutal like Jael, which I love, like slamming a tent stake through someone's head. That's pretty metal. So that made me happy. Um, also, if we had a girl, that's one of the names I like because of that. But uh, I, I decided to, instead of focusing on one pr- uh, particular name, um, kind of be discussing with you guys why we interpreted some of the passages the way that we did, why our, our stance on women in leadership kind of changed. Um, so some of the verses that Chris um, gave to me were uh, in Corinthians, another one was in Timothy, uh, and then one that I'm actually going to be mostly reading off of is actually from a relevant article. Um, not a relevant in terms of hipster term, but relevant the like the online publication. Um, but it was, uh, um, it was about the woman in Proverbs. And so I thought maybe instead of giving a specific woman, I will talk about these um, fantasy women if we, that we often have, the, uh, the myth of woman, if you will, or the uh, ideal woman that we sometimes put. Um, and it's not something that I think uh, women just do to themselves or even men would do with themselves, but I think it's something that men do to women as well, is we paint this picture of what a perfect woman is and we have all these demands and expectations. Um, and even when we go into Proverbs, which we will later, um, start to ask ourselves, was this expectation, was this degree of perfection ever meant to happen? Or was it supposed to be something like Christ, that we can never achieve the perfection of Christ? We can never be that, but instead surrender to what Christ has done and be okay with the fact that he is perfect and that he is our mediator. And we don't have to be perfect, but we can do is surrender and live out these attributes or live out these things that the woman in Proverbs has talked about or live out the things that Christ has talked about, but it's not through our perfection that we either would become a good woman or a good man our follower of Christ, it's through Christ's perfection and that we simply get to have the honor of walking with that will and responding with it. So the first passage that I'm going to try to tackle today, and I will say this is going to be a little more scripted than my usual. I have a really, really bad migraine right now, uh, and so like, it was really hard for me to focus uh, even last night and this morning. Um, and so I was like, okay, maybe if I write out stuff a little better, I'll be able to articulate it without like going off on a tangent. Um, so, But thankfully... Uh, doing some of those worship songs, and I think enough coffee and caffeine kind of tamed it out, so that, that, that helped out. But uh, the first passage we're going to be reading out of is going to be in 1 Corinthians. Um, the particular verse uh, would have been 1 Corinthians 14, chapter 14, uh, chapters, or verses 34 through 35. Um, like a lot of the stuff that we do here, 
um, we like to keep it within the context of the verse, so I'm not just reading the specific. Um, So I'm going to be starting at verse 26 of chapter 14 and then go through 35. Uh, Does anyone need a Bible? Is everyone good? You got like phone app things or everybody good? Okay, I just didn't want to start reading and be like, oh, I don't have anything to follow with. All right, so it'll be 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 26. And this is about orderly worship. What should be done then, my friends, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, that all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. If there is no one to interpret, let them be silent in the church and speak to themselves and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to someone else sitting nearby, let the first person be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn to be encouraged. And if the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is a God of, not of disorder, but a God of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Sounds like a really strong verse, right? Woman be silent. Um, and, it, and I think oftentimes it has been used as such. Uh, and the big thing is like a lot of things, you have to consider context um, when this is written. What is, who are the Corinthians? What is the Corinthian church? What is the era, the history um, that's going on culturally? You know, how are things changing? Uh, And other letters that Paul has written, has he been this critical of women being silent and things like that? And so uh, I'm going to read through some of the exegetical points that uh, I was kind of led through um, in this passage. And even when we were discussing women in leadership, this is one of the verses that I never really struggled with in the sense of, like, um, that this was saying women shouldn't be in leadership. This is one of the ones that has always been contextual to me, has always been cultural to me. Uh, It was never really hard for me to wrestle with. Um, the hardest part for me, though, was some of the Old Testament passages. I couldn't really find something um, within the Old Testament that was kind of like, hey, get over women being subordinate to men and stuff like that. Uh, and surprisingly enough for me, that came through passages, passages in Genesis. Uh, and we'll discuss that probably more another time, or even if you want to read our entire statement. Uh, we should have it up on the website now, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, and so you can actually read through our entire like kind of little mini dissertation type thing, because it's like 12 pages. There you go. <laughs> so, but this will actually have this even uh, written out better than even what I put. Um, but I'm just going to read through real quick. Uh, and so what an exegetical um, that word, what that means is you're going through Scripture, you're looking at the, the context, the history that it was written, you're looking at the language that was used, you're looking to the particular audience, what kind of genre it was written in. And so what would the genre be in this? Well, this is a letter to the... Yes, we'll be talking more about this in our Sunday school teachings too. So um, probably, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we talk about is, well, uh, there's a really good book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And not that we're going to use it for our class, but it does a really good job of using these big church words, hermeneutic, uh, exegesis, and stuff like that, and giving it a more practical, like, oh, so this just means that you're reading it within the context of what it's supposed to be, not that you're just using a big word to make you sound intelligent. Um, and that's what this essentially is that I'm going to read off, is this is my exegetical approach just summarized uh, down to this particular passage in Corinthians, and particularly with the part about women being silent. Um, So I'm going to read that off real quick. So what I have here is, uh, before we look at this verse specifically, 
we must first recall that in his letter, meaning Paul, to the Corinthian church, Paul has already indicated that women can participate in prayer, prophecy, and have the authority in the church of Corinth. This can be found in 1 Corinthians 11, 5, 10, uh, 14, 3 through 5. Thus, we cannot assume that this particular verse is a general or absolute prohibition to women speaking in the church ever. What I mean by that is that in previous verses, Paul has been okay with women talking, prophecy, all those different things. Why now is he just like, within the same book, why is he just like, now you've got to be silent? So there's got to be something here. Either he's contradicting himself or there's something contextually here that we need to look into. Um, so what we came to the conclusion, uh, so us at City Church, is that we would argue that this silence uh, issued to women is likely a specific or limited silence to the Church of Corinth, particularly disruptive cre- questioning likely to do with the lack of education offered to women in Cor- Corinth. Paul is insisting that these Corinthian women seek order, appropriateness, and wise counsel over disruptive questioning. Arguably, this counsel uh, could be found within their own households from their husband, as Paul offers in 1 Corinthians 14.35. So how he says, you know, like, um, in that particular verse, if there's anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. Again, this is, I'm not arguing that it's saying that, like, oh, you can't know anything unless your man knows it. That's not my point. Uh, And I'll I'll get to that, what the disruptive questioning means. So disruptive questioning was considered a disgrace to the Corinthian culture. Specifically, women were often instructed to never say anything on any subject matter in public ever. We know that Paul is not speaking that critically or absolutely here because his other works, as well as Scripture, systematically. Systematically means that throughout all of Scripture, so it can be found from Genesis to Revelation, that uh, it's not just in this verse, but in other passages of Scripture, women are talking with authority or do have authority, whether it be prophecy, whether it be through teaching, preaching, all those different things. Um, let me go through that again. So we know that Paul's not speaking uh, that critically or absolutely here because his, in his other works, as well as Scripture systematically, accounts of women spo- speaking both publicly and with authority are documented and commended. Therefore, we can best interpret this passage as follows, and not with the interpretation that Paul is insisting that women never, never speak within the church of Corinth or the church that follows. What I mean by the church that follows is that not just the church of Corinth, but our church today, so the church holistically. Paul is concerned about the order and appropriateness within the church of Corinth. To obtain that, it is important that everyone participates. This can be found in 1 Corinthians 14, 26-40. And if women, whom in their culture were given few opportunities to be educated, were to be given authority within the church, as mentioned above, they should do so with caution, seeking wise counsel and with humble silence that is not disrupted to the order of the Corinthian church. So the exegetical or the contextual interpretation we can get from this passage, it's not that women weren't supposed to speak, it's that in Corinth, a large majority of the time, women were never given the opportunity to be educated. And since they were never given the opportunity to be educated, what Paul's trying to sit here is just don't just spew out opinions. Don't just Facebook post what you think. What what he's saying is that, like, seek wise counsel. And the reason why he says seek your husband is because they were given education. It's not because it was a man. It's just, just culturally that happened to be the people that were educated. And so I was saying, seek wise counsel before you just go spewing your opinion, before you just start yelling things. Uh, And we know that's true because Paul even talks about how they're going to be, women will be given prophecy, they can speak in tongues, all these different things and stuff like that. He's just saying, have order with it. You know, seek counsel with it. And I was trying to think of like, well, today, how can this apply? So one, yeah, Facebook posting, don't just spew your opinion, educate yourself before you do so. And when you educate yourself, find good source work Good source material. Wikipedia is not a source material. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not the best sourcing. Um, but I was thinking even for myself, like, I often, uh, I get really overwhelmed when I get a bunch of text messages. 
and that's not how I communicate. I'm, not a, I'm a very face-to-face person. I like to sit down, have a conversation. Uh, maybe it's just me being an old man, I don't know, um, even though I'm not that old. But like, I, I like just face-to-face conversations. And texting really like, gets to me, um, but I think of some of my other friends that that's how their mind thinks. You know, a thought comes to their mind, they send it out. Thought comes to their mind, sends it out. Thought comes to their mind, sends it out. But when you consider how you communicate with the other person, it's seeking that wise counsel of saying, like, hey, man, maybe that's not the way that Jake best communicates. Maybe what I can do is, like, calm down my thoughts, think about how I can send one text message and be like, hey, can we get together Wednesday or we can get together Thursday or we can get together one other day. It's how you can communicate and seeking the wise counsel appropriately, not just spewing out your opinion. Uh, and the same thing with church services, like when we ask questions and stuff like that, or even when you see like a Facebook article or something like that just really irritates you, you really think the wisest thing to do is just to, another 200 words or less, tell somebody how they're wrong and that's just going to change their perspective? It's likely not going to happen. And so instead, seek the wise counsel. If you find something that offends you or upsets you, go after someone that maybe is educated in that field and say, like, hey, this is what's upsetting me. This doesn't make sense to me. Can you further this knowledge for me? Seek out people that are better, and better than you. I think so often in our times in life, we are so caught up on being the best that we're not seeking people that are actually better than us and encouraging them for being better. We tend to look at them negatively and say that, like, oh, well, you're better because this opportunity happened for you, when sometimes they've just made better decisions than what we have, and we should be more like them as opposed to criticizing them to bring them down to where we think they are or where we are. So encourage one another, seek that wise counsel, and this is something that applies to us today. Don't just spew opinions, don't just throw up what you think, but actually educate yourself. Find good education, find wise counsel that can show you, hey, this is what a good source looks like. Uh, And even with our faith and with Christianity, you know, instead of maybe preaching, um, you know, you're going to burn in hell forever and stuff like that, really ask yourself, well, what's the doctrines of hell? What do people think about hell? What's, What's the doctrines of eternity? What's the doctrines of spiritual gifts? You know, what are some of the theological significance or implications that can come from this? You know, seek those things out before you just think that you know it. I mean, I don't know it altogether. I'm constantly being questioned by Chris or Mike or even Brent sometimes. You know, and I say that because Brent, when I say sometimes, I don't mean like, oh, like, you're so dumb. No, like, (laughs) but Brent in the central, Brent will just be like, what does it mean then? And I'm like, well, uh, I just went on this rant, and uh, you're absolutely right. What does it mean? What's the significance? You know? Uh, and so, like, seek out that wise counsel and seek out the people that are better than you in other fields uh, because they can sometimes bring that into your life and infuse that and help you see in a perspective you haven't seen before. So next, uh, controversial, or maybe not controversial, but passage that could be taken um, out of context to cause women to not have authority in the church or not even be able to talk would be uh, 1 Timothy 2.12. I'm going to turn to that real quick. I use the NRSV. I'm sorry, I can't get out of it. <laughs> really? Maybe because mine has the Apocrypha. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, what? Stone of yeah. I mean, that's pretty metal, so. <laughs> um, so, again, with this, we're going to read within the context, so I'm not just going to read um, verse 12. I'm actually going to start at verse 8. Of 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire then that every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and arguments. Also that women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as it is proper for women to profess reverence for God. 
Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man, if she is to be kept or to be keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through the childbearing, provided that they continue in faith and love for holiness and modesty. Real si- quick side note, uh, verse 15 is one of the most, well, I wouldn't say most uh, not understood. It's a passage or a verse that I don't think anybody will ever have a full uh, understanding of or a, a perfect interpretation of. Um, and so I'm not going to touch on that one. I don't want you to think I'm avoiding it. Um, but there is, there's a lot of mystery to that passage. What does it mean that they'll be saved through childbirth and stuff like that? There's a lot of deep theology in that. So I'm not going to go into that. That could be a whole sermon on itself, just that verse. But we're going to speak specifically, though, on uh, verse 12. And verse 12 was that I per- permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Uh, sounds, uh, sounds very uh, pre-women uh, not being able to vote and things like that. Like, you just have no authority over a man. Um, but what we can look for here, exegetically speaking, is that the Greek word for authority that Paul uses in this passage is best interpreted as the abuse of authority or to have a domineering authority over another. It's one of the things that really stinks about English is that we have kind of one word. You know, Greek, there's like so many, we were talking to Emily about this because she's looking at other languages too, but I really love Greek because it's so specific and it's so... Like, it's not just like, hey, here's this the. You know, it's like, no, there's like 27 conjugations of the pertaining to whatever thing you're talking to. And it's like, if you're talking about this God, it's like, no, this is this specific God. We're not just talking about the gods or time. There's a a tense in the sense of like futuristic tense. So things that haven't even happened, that's how like in depth uh, their language is. And so for us, we have this authority. So women should have no authority over a man. That's how we translate it. But if we were to translate it as a, should not have domineering authority over another or should not abuse authority over another. And then let's ask ourselves, well, culturally, what's happening here? And so another thing to consider is that this particular word for authority is unusual for Paul to use when discussing the normative church structure or leadership. And it's likely why the authority Paul is addressing here is specific to Timothy and the church of Ephesus. It is also vital to our interpretation of this letter to Timothy, the church of Ephesus, that we do not see these instructions as Paul establishing church policy for all time. Notice that even with the authority of an apostle, there is no specific declaration by God that these instructions to Timothy and the church of Ephesus are for the holistic church. Thus, we must read this letter as a particular instruction to Timothy and the church of Ephesus, acknowledging this kind of language is never used by Paul anywhere else in his writing. What I mean by that is that word for authority. The particular situation of Ephesus at this time, Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, was as follows. The the women of Ephesus dominated their culture and their priesthoods of the religions, religions that arguably began with the worship of the mother of all gods and later became Artemis. As the Greeks immigrated into Asia Minor and Ephesus, these women would not also allow men to become priests in these religions, but typically by means of castration and renouncing their masculinity. Josephus also notes in his accounts of Asia Minor that there may be Jews who have been exiled to Asia Minor in the 2nd century BCE, incorporated some of these traditions into their brand of Judaism. Traditions such as considering marriage a form of slavery and avoiding women altogether in hopes of avoiding bodily passions. Here, Paul is trying to correct some teachings uh, of the religious asceticism that was happening to Ephesus, where Timothy was preaching and leading. Early on and throughout the book of Timothy, Paul warned Timothy and urged him to protect God's people from false teachers, 
endless genealogies, people who claim to be teachers of the law, and those forbidding marriage and eating of certain foods. This can be found in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7, 4, 1 through 5, 6, 20 through 21. It is likely then, at least in this particular passage, that Paul is warning Timothy against any abuse or domineering forms of power in Ephesus. This kind of authority was likely to come from women who had majority cultural and religious influence and authority. So what I mean by all that is when Paul is saying that women should not have authority over the men here, Paul is speaking specific to the culture of Ephesus. At this time, women literally had all the authority. They ran all the religions. And some of the ways that they ran those religions is like, okay, if you want to be a part of this as a man, you have to castrate yourself. And you have to renounce your masculinity. Like, so it's this domineering, forceful, physical, abusive behavior over men in that culture. So what Paul's saying in this is like, don't be like that towards men. Like, let, let them join your religion, you know, or preferably Christianity. But let them, let, them, let them join your faith and be as they are. But I was thinking about that even today is that some, there's some radical forms of um, even anti-racism or feminism or whatever ism you want to put or ist that you want to put, where instead of standing up for the justice or the injustices that are happening, we make it more about harming the people that have already harmed and, you know, as I've discussed with several people, is that, you know, for every, like, Martin Luther King, there's, like, ten Malcolm X's. You know, and I'm not saying that, like, everything Malcolm X did was wrong, but what I'm saying is that, like, for every person, you know, pushing for peace and, pe- and focusing on the over-idea of justice, the over-idea of inequality and things like that, there's someone that's going to want that vengeance back. And are, arguably, rightfully so. They, you know, like, that you would want that justice, that you'd want vengeance back, but, like, it's not going to change if we keep killing each other. You think after how many thousands of years we've been on this earth that we'd realize that, like, killing people just doesn't fix it? Like, that's someone's dad, that's someone's son, that's someone's brother, sister, mom, or whatever. They're going to be hurt by that and want to kill you back. It takes someone saying that you've wronged me and I need to extend grace to you and mercy to you and show you, no, this is the perspective of how to live. It just oftentimes really kind of sucks that it tends to be the people that the injustices that are happening to are the ones that are proclaiming this truth. Um, And so like in Timothy, I hope that uh, when we are doing stuff within leadership or we are having authority, that we're not abusing that authority. We're not using it as a domineering thing that we're holding it over somebody or say that women are treated fairly fairly in our culture. And arguably racism probably never will end. There probably will always be racism, at least here in our time here on earth. But say if it was to get better, my hope is that that the people that were prejudiced against wouldn't then begin to become those who prejudice against other people that aren't causing that harm towards other people. Um, but instead, they'd be like, no, we've, done, we've understood what it is to be in that part of the field or part of the fence, so like now uh, let us treat you appropriately and not hold that over you, not have vengeance over you. And so I hope that you know, we can gain that uh, from this passage in Timothy is that whenever we're given authority, they won't use it to abuse that power. And so the last verse that uh, I'm going to go through, and I was going to read it all the way through, but it's a very long verse, and I don't want to keep you much longer because I think I'm already over 20 minutes. Um, But it's in Proverbs, and it's uh, Proverbs 31, verses 1 through 31. And I will say what I'm reading here, uh, just for the sake of copyright and things like that, I will never uh, just plagiarize something that someone said without giving them credit. Um, So this is from a woman by the name of Bailey Jo Welch. Um, she wrote this article for Relevant, and it was kind of like her quick little interpretation on that passage in Proverbs. And I thought that if I'm going to be up here talking about women, and even though I'm a man, and I don't have the best perspective, maybe the least I could do is read from a perspective of a woman and hope that that would be a little more um, realistic in the sense of what a woman of Proverbs would be like. 
And so, uh, like I said, for the sake of saving time, uh, I'm going to encourage you guys to read that passage, because um, it is it's a very long pack- passage, but this is what uh, Bailey Welch says. She put, as a teenager, I interpreted her identity, meaning the woman of Proverbs, as an identity I, too, should strive for, as a woman of God, as a wife, and as a mother. She was everything I was supposed to be. It is a vicious way to live as we try to reconcile who we are with who we believe we should be. The attributes described in Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 are not bad. They are good, important, and biblical. The problem lies in the guilt uh, that this description inevitably places on many women within the church. Let's face it, we can't measure up to this lady. I don't think we are meant to, though. As I continued to read articles and listen to sermons dedicated to how to become a, a godly woman by following this passage, I realized two things. The Proverbs 31 woman, woman is literally fictional, uh, there are no, and also, there are no real-life women in the Bible who do not fit this description whom God still used in a miraculous way to further his kingdom. A lot of them. She then goes on to say, actual women of the Bible. Since Genesis, God has used women of all backgrounds, ethnicities, careers, relationship statuses, reputation, uh, as important as necessary characters, and his great love for the story of humanity. In a walk through the Bible, we read about many unique women purposed by God in his time and his way. And so I thought I would include this too, because as we're going to go through women within uh, our sermons and stuff like that, we're going to specifically be picking certain women to talk about them and say this is how they led their culture, or this is how they taught their culture, to show that Scripture does have accounts of women leading and teaching and preaching and being elders. So the first one that she talks about is Sarah. She put Sarah was a good wife, but was cynical about the future and even laughed when God promised her a son in her old age. Sarah did not trust God to keep his promises he had made, excuse me, and yet he chose to keep them anyway. And from her lineage, Christ was eventually born. God wrote an old cynical lady into his mercy. Deborah was a warrior and a leader of Israel. She was strong and wise, fighting for justice and holding court under the palm of Deborah. She was quite likely to be the opposite of gentle, quiet, and things like that. Under her authority, the Lord led the Israelites out of bondage. God wrote a feisty warrior into his story. Rahab, and she was initially the one I was going to talk about uh, today, but then I felt like it was better to kind of go through this and give you a good kind of synopsis of what we're going to be talking about. But Rahab was a prostitute who knew the Lord. She hid the Israelite spies to protect them from the king of Jericho and help them escape over the city walls. The spies returned to Israelite camp, armed with knowledge, and prepared for battle. The city of Jericho was destroyed, but Rahab and her family were spared because of her kindness to God's people. God wrote a faithful prostitute into his story. The cool thing about that is that she lied. So this is a good, this is a good coffee conversation or oracle conversation. Is, is scripture promoting lying? Is it ethical to lie? Or could it be pertaining to the aspect that maybe that she feared God more than she feared the people of Jericho? So good, good, good ethical thing to talk about. Esther is what our youth kids have been going through. Was a Jewish orphan turned queen. When she was told of the plan of the Jews in that area, she broke uh, the law and risked her life to go before the king and plead for their lives of her people. God wrote a law-breaking queen into his story. Priscilla was called to proclaim the gospel and did so courageously. Unwilling to simply watch her husband preach, she stood beside him, even taking Apollo, a missionary, aside to correct his faulty teachings. Apollo went out from them uh, when he engaged in public debate and provided to the people that there was Jesus and he was the Christ, God wrote a passionate preacher into a story. And I like that she included this, the woman at the well. 
And there's something really significant when Scripture just refers to somebody as something and doesn't give them a name. Um, this, this idea that it transcend, transcends the name, like really focus on what's happening here. But the Samaritan woman at the well is unnamed, but was vital in taking Jesus' message and ministry to the Samaritan community. She was, wrong ethnicity, she was the wrong ethnicity, according to the Jews, and had been divorced five times, but Jesus looked at her uh, and looked at her heart and gave her a mandate to preach the gospel to the community he could not have reached in the same way. God wrote a broken, unloved woman into his story. So this is what she concludes with, is that rather than lamenting at our inability to fit the idea of what a godly woman is, we should instead joyfully take our place in the long line of women who might have ruffled a few feathers in the name of the Lord. Whether we have a fierce sense of justice like Deborah, or we are called to proclaim the gospel like Priscilla, whether we are courageously to protect the vulnerable like Esther, or we are every kind of wrong but determined to be faithful and obedient to Jesus like the Samaritan woman at the well. God wants us all. And so the point here that she's concluding with it is it's all about Christ. It's not about us. It's not about us being perfect. It's how he is perfect. And that we are all collectively called to respond or how are we honoring God in this response and how we recognize his perfection or how he even sets up this woman of perfection in Proverbs. It's not so you can be like that, but you can say, like, these are the things to aspire to. And whether or not you aspire to it or not, God still loves you, and he's taking care of that. His glory, his mediation is what makes us perfect. When God looks down on us, he doesn't see us. He sees his son when we become followers of him. Uh, He sees his son's perfection in us. Uh, And he calls us to change those things, not so he can hold us over and be like, oh, you're sinful and you're a horrible person, but so we can better get to know him so we can better be redeemed back to him. That we can, the things that we see bad in ourselves, something that Christ would call to be bad in ourselves, it's not just because it's a right or a wrong. It's not just a law thing. It's that the more you eliminate those things, the more you repent from those things, the closer you get to God because you start seeing things in his perspective. And the more you start seeing things in his perspective, you start seeing each other in that perspective. It will change your community. It will change you. And so one of the things I think we should walk away from with this is that God continually throughout Scripture, at least particularly in this part, that we've been talking about, uses women, and all these women are broken in some way. And even in Scripture with all the men, all these men are broken in some way. These are the people that God uses. You know, and he uses people that culturally, the disciples, like the Samaritan woman, like these disciples have been like, she's not the right person. Why are you even talking to her? You know, because she was a Samaritan, and she was a woman, and she was divorced five times. Why are you wasting your time on her? That's what God uses. These are the things that God, you know, just loves. Is that, okay, the thing that you think is the scum of the earth, the thing that you think that nobody would ever use, I'm going to use this. And you think of Mary, the woman that's called blessed, that has a child out of wedlock, that has a child at a young age, has a child arguably uh, being an illegal citizen of the land, you know, and that this child is then crucified um, for nothing that he's done no wrong, takes on the sin of the world, and she's called blessed. This is what blessing looks like. But this is what God chose. He chose somebody that wasn't a queen, that wasn't a princess. He brought his son to this world through a basic, normal person. And that's, I think, if we can relate to anything, is that nobody here is better than anybody else in the sense of that we have a higher standing with God. But as a community, as the church, may we have the humility to be silent uh, when we aren't being educated and we're not just spewing opinions, but the discipline to really focus on things. 
Um, maybe when we have authority, whether it's Chris or I or anybody within the church or even in your job, maybe done in a way that is leading, not just demeaning. It's not just cutting people down. And as we are pursuing Christ and we are looking towards Christ, maybe we be focused on his perfection, not on our perfection, because it's not about us being perfect. It's about us honoring him and getting closer to him so we can better fulfill his will and better see things in the way he does. Um, were you doing communion? Okay. Chris is going to come up for communion. Uh, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to enter into that time together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for um, just that you transcend our perspectives, that you transcend our knowledge, Lord, that even though we can use theology and education to uh, better interpret passages, uh, what we believe you're calling our church to do, Lord, that um, that could change again, Lord that we don't worship knowledge of you, that we don't worship theology of you, Lord, but we worship you and we praise you that one of our image-bearing qualities is reason, Lord, and that you desire to educate us so we can better get to know you, Lord, and that we can educate those around us, Lord, that you are rational to some extent, Lord, but you, in that rational thinking, Lord, that we have to submit to the mystery that you are, that you transcend the greatest thought we could ever have, Lord. May we be humble when we come before you. May we surrender when we come before you. May we acknowledge that it's not a matter of how great or how little we see ourselves, Lord, but it's how you see us, Lord. That the the broken glass is just as good as the one that is not, Lord. That you will fill what you're going to fill. You will bind together. You will mend whatever you need to mend, Lord. May we create in a way that glorifies you, not in a way that kills or destroys, Lord. May we honor you in all that we do. It's your name we pray. Amen.